1: Today's a guest that, I'm going to be honest with you, I was a little nervous about, and I was so excited to have her on. Kay Warren joins me today, and Kay is someone who I have adored and looked up to from afar. I have met her, I have been in circles with her, all the things, and I just watch what she does and go... I want to be Kay Warren when I grow up is what I think. And I think a lot of it is just me watching her and her husband, Rick, journey through public ministry and how they've handled it. And so I was super excited to have her on the show today. We talk a lot about how they got through ministry i mean literally we're talking 42 and a half years at the same church as a pastor there's just something to be said about that and so she's super encouraging about their intentionality with how they made it to the end of their journey as pastors at the church with integrity humility and generosity and that's going to be encouraging to you i want to give you a little heads up that we spend the majority of our conversation today talking about mental health challenges and even deeper than that talking about suicide uh Rick and Kay lost their son to suicide in 2013. And so we talk about mental health, the challenges within the church and without of the church, how we can be advocates for people who have these challenges I enjoyed this conversation with Kay because it's something that she deeply understands and she deeply has a passion for helping people. One of the things that Kay has developed over the last couple of years is a ministry called Breathe. It's specifically developed to provide events and opportunities for parents of children with mental illness to talk about the reality of the struggle, to grieve together and point each other toward hope. If this is something that you think would be beneficial to you, go check out kwarren.com and find the information about Breathe. We'll put all of that in the show notes as well. You guys, I want to be Kay Warren. When I grow up, there it is. I'm so happy to bring you this conversation. What a dear, beautiful woman who loves Jesus and loves people. Here's my conversation with Kay Warren. Kay Warren, welcome to the happy hour.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be with you.
1: Well, this is super exciting for me because I have honored and loved and just really adored everything you are doing in your life uh, from afar for a while. And so it is a joy for me to have you on the happy hour. And I want to start this whole conversation by saying congratulations. Um, (laughs) Service. Well done. What was it? Forty two and a half years at the same church. Yep.
0: Yep, same church all our our entire adult lives. I don't know how to do anything else. That's all I've done our entire lives. So Well, yeah. We're refreshing. recording this on a Wednesday and am I right that
1: Sunday was your last Sunday?
0: Yeah, it was. Just uh, you know, 72 hours ago we drove away um to this amazing there was a you know what a clap out is. Uh-huh. Yeah. So we drove out, Surprise to us, this clap out of hundreds and hundreds of people yelling, screaming, telling us they loved us, weeping signs, and we just wept. We couldn't even get out the the driveway. It was just the sweetest, the sweetest moment.
1: Okay, yeah. well, I, um, I do have a question for you because I'm married to a pastor as well, and he leaves in the morning on Sundays before I ever get up, but he always wakes me up to tell me goodbye. And so often... Often it's just a nothing. It's like, okay, goodbye, love you. But sometimes if I know he's preaching or whatever, I know what's been going on in his world, I'll say a little something to him. What are you saying to Rick either Saturday night or Saturday morning or Sunday morning before his last day as pastor of this church?
0: Oh, you know, we were both kind of speechless. We we just stared at each other. I, I posted on Instagram a picture of us as we were driving to church together that day in particular. And I just said, the last of the lasts, the first of the firsts. Um, because that's exactly what it was. It was the last of what we have known and done for 42 and a half years. And it's the beginning of a whole new season. and. I don't know. I think we did a lot of staring into each other's <laughs> eyes because the words, the words just weren't there. They yeah. weren't adequate. They were too big. Yeah. Uh, it was more just something we felt. Yeah. You know, a
1: lot of parents, especially moms in particular, understand what I'm about to say. And I have, not yet fully experienced this, but there's this feeling I've heard when the kids move out and then it's just you and your husband and you kind of go, what is this new normal? And a lot of times, unfortunately, people are like, I don't really know what to do with my life now. And I would imagine that you might be feeling a little bit like that this week. What are you feeling and what is next for you guys?
0: Um we we have said cuz we spent a month kind of on this goodbye tour only it was at church you know oh, yeah. we didn't go So every service for the, like the last month was just had some other taking people back to the 80s into the 90s into the 2000s and then to um you know the the future and um so I just kept saying I feel every I feel big emotions. I feel big grief. Mm. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Big grief. Um, big relief. We did it. Yeah. We made it. We, we finished the race, this part of the race, um, the way that we wanted to. And big um, gratitude. It's like, how in the world did we get the privilege of leading this incredible congregation for 42 and a half years? How did we get to spend our entire lives doing this? You're just so, like pinching yourself like, God, how did this happen? <laughs> Yes, the, the privilege yeah. of it. The the um we're just so grateful. So we just kind of flip between gratitude and sadness mm. and and relief that um I would call it just a real deep soul satisfaction yeah. of yeah, we did what we what we set out to do, which was to live a life of integrity, humility, and generosity. Those mm-hmm. were the things that really mattered to us. And to be able to take a step back and say, man, we didn't do it perfectly. Mm-hmm. We didn't do it mistake free. But there are no skeletons in the closets. There, There's nothing that we're just dreading that someday somebody's going to find this out. We um, we we feel like we were able to live with that kind of integrity we um we began with the end in mind that's mm. where we wanted to be and that's where we ended up and so there's such a huge relief about that you know
1: it feels um, i was sitting here listening to you say that and it feels unfortunate what i'm about to say but i'm going to say it anyways and it feels unfortunate that as a a church person as a as a christian as a follower of jesus as someone in ministry that i'm listening to you say that and i'm like congrats on making it i mean yeah whew. like we're just like it's not easy. Wow. exactly exactly and so I, I meant that a little bit like unfortunately but also is super inspiring and something that my husband and i would also yearn to finish this race well you said you started with the end in mind um what does that look like for people who ministry aside just you're in your you're in your 20s you're in your 30s you're starting what will be you know quote unquote the rest of your life did you guys intentionally talk about these things this is who we want to be when we finish this part yeah. of our race
0: Yes, we intentionally talked about it. Because both of our dads were in ministry, and then we went to Bible college and then to seminary. And even by the time we finished seminary, we had already seen friends that we'd gone to college with that had already fallen by the side of the road for various reasons. And then same graduating seminary, just a short period after that, there were people that had already kind of what we call flamed out. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was an old term, but that was the term that we used. And so, because of our dads being in ministry and watching people that we had known, then going to college and going to seminary, it was like, oh, my gosh, this mm. is not a walk in the park. Yeah. If we really want to get to the end of ministry, where, whenever that is, with integrity, um, with the, yeah, ending with that, yeah. then we're going to have to make some decisions along the road, and we're going to have to start right now and um, i was telling our staff wives at a at an event earlier this year i said you know and this was before we actually knew that september 3rd and 4th um well yeah september 3rd and 4th we're going to be like our last and 11 12 was the day we're going to turn it over to the new pastor but um so back in march i was saying listen you guys you might think that that day ahead of us is going to be the last day of saddleback but actually we started thinking of the last day on the first day we did our bible study january 25th 1980 wow because we knew that to get to where we wanted that end of finishing well where we could say before god we lived before you with honesty and integrity Mm. um in holiness and um with keeping jesus first uh we're gonna have to make a million decisions along the way that means keeping the long view in every situation and like you said whether it's ministry or or life yeah um You want to be a certain kind of person at the end of your life. You don't get to just wake up one morning and find that you're there. You're there because you made a thousand decisions a day that kept you centered on that goal. Mm. And you're willing to make the course corrections along the way to get you to where you want to go. It doesn't just happen. It's intentional. It's deliberate. And I really believe it's in your control. I really believe it is in our control. That is so good because there are so many people here
1: listening who know who they want to be at eighty. They know who they want I think all of us do. Like we want to end
0: our life well. But it
1: is Nobody wants
0: to be nobody wants to be you know, nobody wants to mess up Mm -mm. and be one of those people that you go, Oh, they're a they're a cautionary tale. Right. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody.
1: It's those small steps along the way. It
0: is small decisions every single day. It's saying no to yourself over and over and over and saying yes to God Wow. Um, and the temptation and the easy thing to do when we're tired or fatigued or really under a lot of stress or um, things are just you know the bottom falls out the temptation is just to say yes to yourself Mm -hmm. well I I deserve I need this this is gonna make me feel better or um, how come he or she gets all of that and I don't and so I deserve this or whatever it's gonna make me feel better right now and whenever we do that We just need to know that we have taken ourselves off of the path, at least temporarily, for the person we really genuinely want to Mm. be. And I think it's good to note
1: there's course correction. Yeah, we get back on. You can get back on. That is so true. It is not over.
2: Well, Kay,
1: you've done some phenomenal work um, on your own, aside from um, co-founding and and being a part of Saddleback for all these years. You've been an advocate for people living with HIV and AIDS, vulnerable people groups, huge advocate. And a lot of the work that you do right now is over helping families who have children who have mental health struggles and mental health challenges, I should say. Um, I would like for you to take us back a little bit and tell me a little bit of your story as to where this became such a passion uh, for you and for your husband that you would spend so much of your life's work um, helping people with this.
0: Yeah, uh, thanks for asking that. Um, you know, i I became an advocate for people with HIV and AIDS and for orphans and vulnerable children. That was a deliberate decision. God called me kind of out of the blue. That's a whole long story, but it was just a deliberate. There was this moment in which God. Um, said to me, this is what I'm calling you to do. Will you say yes or no? Mm. And so that was a a decision that I made to become an advocate for people with HIV and for orphans and vulnerable children. I became an advocate for people living with mental illness because I was thrust into the situation. Mm. Um, the 10 years that I spent as a global advocate for HIV and orphans, um, I mean, I cried more than i had ever cried. I, my heart was broken by what I saw by the people that I encountered. But I wasn't HIV positive, I none of my children were, um, my children were not orphans. So there was, if you will, there was a bit of distance between my caring and my compassion and my own personal experience. But when my youngest son um, had serious mental illness, and then died by suicide um, on April fifth, two 2013, it was not an impersonal advocacy, it was the most personal it had landed in my home Mm. and i knew the day that on the day that matthew died it's the weirdest thing i knew as we were waiting outside of his house for the police to confirm um, what we were pretty sure had happened um, i had this out of body moment where i thought to myself i am no longer an advocate for people with hiv needs not because i don't care but because God has just switched my advocacy and Mm -hmm. it's going to be different from here on out. I can't walk away from this. Um, It's too personal. It's too real. And so I have spent nearly a decade. um, Next April will be 10 years since Matthew went to heaven. And I've spent, you know, almost a decade from the deepest place of my heart, um, caring for other people living with mental health challenges for the family members, Um, for people living with suicidal, chronic suicidal thoughts, Mm. survivors of suicide loss. Um, It's some of the hardest
1: work I've ever done. I would imagine it is. And, you know, we're at the end of September, which is September is Suicide Awareness Month. And so there's been conversations and talks about it. And I know this is deeply personal for you and your husband, Rick, and it has impacted the work that you do. I want to ask you about um, mental health challenges and within the church, and you bring a unique Viewpoint to this conversation, not only as a follower of Jesus, but as a very public church leader, and so I would imagine when you and Rick were walking through this tragedy that I hope none of us have to walk through, there was an added level of this pressure. I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth that you might have felt, and so I'm wondering if you can talk to the stigma that so many people in the church have um, around mental health challenges and around people dying by suicide. Can you talk a little bit like how you've seen changes
0: in that even? I'll tell you the good news first and the good we'll news start first seen movement um, and growth in the faith community to understand that that mental illness, mental health challenges is not sinful. It doesn't mean that somebody has is weak, that somebody doesn't have faith that if they just memorized more verses, mm-hmm. or if they had a demon cast out of them, or, you know, it, we've just m- removed it from that purely spiritual kind of a um, failure on somebody's part to understanding that that something can go wrong at every level in us. We're body, soul, and spirit, and, and things can happen in our brains. Things, our bodies are frail. We are jars of clay. And and um so to as the church as a faith community begins to understand that um the the brain is as much a part of the body as the liver or the kidneys or the heart then that has really helped in taking down some of the mm-hmm. stigma that's the positive side. the The other part of the reality is, though, it hasn't gone away. Yeah, you know, it has. The stigma hasn't gone away. There still is. Um, there's still some pretty deep pockets of people who still think that way. And mm. and even if they don't think that overt stigma, I think sometimes church leaders just don't know what to do. Yeah. So even if their heart is turned in compassion towards somebody they didn't get trained in seminary or yep. bible college they didn't they don't really know and so they tend to think oh that's a person who has a mental health challenge i need to get i need to turn them over to a professional mm. and there's value in that but one of my mentors dr john swinton is professor of um uh, disability and um, in, at the at um, University of Aberdeen in in Scotland says what if we what if we take that and turn that phrase because right now a lot of faith leaders are saying oh there's a person with a mental illness they need to see a professional mm-hmm. and so then they abdicate their responsibility for caring for mm. a, a person or their family what if we turn that around and say oh there's a person with a mental illness or Mm -hmm. mental health challenge, then suddenly it lands right back in our laps. Because who is more equipped to deal with persons than the faith community? Mm. It's in our DNA, is to care for persons. Mental health professionals, there's a role, absolutely. But the church has a role, too. And our role is to care for persons mm. who actually may have then a mental health challenge. So I love to be able to talk to faith leaders to see where they're growing past or out of the stigma but into that place then of helplessness, I don't know what to do or it's not in it's not in my wheelhouse. I didn't study that. Okay. But caring for persons mm. is in your wheelhouse. Right. It is actually your command mm. by God. And so to to learn and to be able to even if even if the smallest thing a church does is to say in the in the community prayer time, communal prayer time, God, we pray for for people today, men and women, boys and girls who are living with depression, mm. who are struggling with crippling anxiety. God, you care about your sons and daughters who are experiencing that. That right there is such a stigma buster. Yeah, right. And says you are you are safe here. Mm. You're not you're not put down for this. You are recognized as a person who is maybe in need of comfort or sustenance or care. Mm. And we're here to do it. Even if we don't do it perfectly, we're here to do it.
1: That's so good. In 2020, my husband was diagnosed with a clinical depression, and he has publicly preached from the stage about that. And um, that was a little, maybe a little scary for him. I'm not sure. We're fine about it. But he had so many people come to him afterwards and say, "I've I've never heard anyone talk about this from a stage, and I've been in church my whole life. Thank you for letting me feel like I'm not alone." And I think yeah. that is even when we think about you know the this month of September where there might be more awareness focused on uh, mental health uh, challenges. Even just those small moments of saying, "Oh, I had never heard anyone talk about this before," especially in the faith community, it can do a lot a, a lot of
2: work.
0: Well, it's actually life-saving. It's not just nice. Mm. It's not just, oh, that's a kind thing to do, or it, it actually saves lives. Mm. When people feel that they are accepted and cared for and that they are not other, but that they are very much, you know, when when Aaron, I've not met Aaron, but I know his name. So So when Aaron, I'm imagining, said that, and and got that kind of response from the congregation he normalized Mm -hmm. what a mental health challenge looked like because people could say oh I know pastor Aaron he's been preaching here all these years he teaches the Bible if he has depression then it must be okay for me. Yeah. I'm not weird or strange or a bad Christian. Mm. And so to to give mental health challenges a face like that was powerful. Yeah. That was powerful work. Mm. Powerful ministry that he that he has done by saying that.
1: Well, I I will tell him what you said, and he will, he will be appreciated. But I think about that even with my podcast here at The Happy Eye, We've tried to have people to come on to normalize conversations around this. And I'm telling you, even by hosting this show, I have learned so much that I wouldn't have known because it didn't personally affect me. Um, yeah. I remember when Kayla Stockline came on, and uh, I learned in that conversation about the phrase, death by suicide versus committed suicide. And I was telling my family last night at dinner that I was going to be talking to you, and I was telling them what we're going to talk about, and I was telling them how I had learned that. And it was just those small things to help go, oh, we can have these conversations, and we don't have to be afraid of them. I think that is what can be so encouraging to the church to be able to have these conversations.
0: Well and and I think um you know I I talked a few minutes ago about how I was an advocate for people with HIV for a decade and you talk about stigma again it's oh, huge. right um, still in in the faith community, but but as I was a global advocate and I would travel around to other places, I got used to men and women coming up and whispering in my ear, I- "I'm HIV positive" mm. or "I have AIDS." And the reason they whispered in my, my ear was because the stigma, even you know, um, fifteen years ago, was enormous, particularly in other some other parts of the world where maybe there wasn't even as much an understanding about how HIV is transmitted. And so people would say, I lost my friends. Mm. I couldn't sit next to people in church anymore. People stopped sitting next to me. Well who wants that? They wouldn't let other people play with other kids play with my kids. So they would whisper to me because Mm. of the stigma. What I wasn't expecting was still to this day, when I talk to people in faith communities and I travel, I will have people come up to me and whisper in my ear, I just got a diagnosis of depression, Mm. my dad died by suicide, and I've never really talked about it, or I have borderline, you know, borderline personality disorder, they will come and they will whisper Mm. either their diagnosis or their life circumstance because the stigma is still present. And what I've come to believe is that nobody should have to whisper anything about their lives. In church, that's the church so needs okay. to be the safest place on earth where you don't have to whisper about anything. You can bring it into the place where God is intended for you to find life mm. and love and relationship and acceptance and and comfort mm. and and strength. So, um, Aaron, I, I'm serious. What he did is he made it so that people don't have to whisper in your church, and that's. Good for him.
1: We should have a sign at our church that says there's no whispering allowed. No whispering here, guys. You know, there's a flip side of this that you and um, your husband have endured as well is that's parenting. And you have started an organization that really wa- seeks to help families uh, who are walking beside and along um, children and loved ones who are experiencing mental health challenges. And you guys have been very open about your son Matthew's journey with mental health and that it was from a young age. um he struggled with depression and anxiety. Um, a lot of times, parents feel very much alone in this journey. Feel very much, what did I do wrong? What do I do? What is the hope for parents as they're journeying alongside either their seven-year-old or their twenty-five-year-old or their forty-two-year-old? What is the hope, and how are some things that you can say to encourage them in that journey if they're listening to us?
0: Yeah, well, yeah, I need about three hours to talk about that. That's because, gonna be a, uh, a six week series that we're gonna bring you guys. <laughs> yes, I'll be back next week at the same time. <laughs> yes. Um uh, yeah, no, I I have I started an organization called Breathe and um it's not an acronym. It just it just is parenting a child with serious mental illness is um it's a long journey. And um, when I was growing up and we would go see family, we lived in California, and when we go see family back in Texas, we didn't have the money to stay in motels or anything. So we counted on these rest stops all the way along between California and West Texas, where you could stop and you could go to the bathroom and you could get you know something to drink and you could just refresh yourself and keep going. And so m- mental illness can be a long journey. Mm-hmm. And um, to have these rest spots along the way, where parents um, can kind of stop and and just breathe and get refreshed and kind of get them back on the road, is really important to me. I didn't have that when Matthew was really ill. I had, I mean, I was fortunate. I was in a church where mm-hmm. we talked about mental health challenges. Although as he got older, I didn't talk as much because it was his it's story. His story and yeah, he, he needed. He needed some privacy mm-hmm. um but so even though we were surrounded by people who loved us and cared for us our friends uh, knew there was still that as you said just this sense of loneliness and and aloneness and i'm telling you it's hard to sit in a bible study group and have everybody else you know doing the catch-up at the beginning of the week and um, you know, people are saying, "Oh, yeah, listen, my 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 son just got this scholarship to Yale," and somebody else says, "Oh, you know what? My daughter just got selected for the dance team at whatever," and you're sitting there just going, "You know what? My kid just punched a hole in the wall and talked about wanting to die." Mm. Um, and I just remember there were times I would get up from the table during that sharing time and go to the bathroom and hope that when I came back that everybody kind of moved on ready to yeah. start the, the lesson of the day. Because if you don't have other people who are um, normalizing your own life, you can feel very much an outsider, yeah. even with people that you know love you mm. and care for you. Mm. So I wanted to make sure that um, other parents have some things that, that we didn't have. Resources. We didn't know where really to look. We didn't know where to get information. You can go to the internet, but and it's a bottomless pit. And right. once you get started on it, you can't ever find the end of it. And so, how do you know what information to trust? And um, so, my website is developed particularly so that um, people either living with mental illness or or family members can go and just like really quickly Mm. access information, not all of it that I've developed, but I've curated. I found from trusted resources and I've, you know, it's free things that are there on on the website. So I want to make sure that they've got resources. I want to make sure that there are support groups. We have some support groups that we really love here at Saddleback. I have these respite retreats for mothers of um, um, kids with serious mental illness and then we do some um, Zoom calls with really trusted mental health experts uh, for parents. So it's moms and dads. Okay. I, just want, I just don't want any of those other parents to feel the hopelessness and the despair and the isolation and the, that there's something wrong with them. There isn't. There isn't. We, we all have things that we carry in our lives that are very difficult and yeah. to find somebody else who's carrying that same burden, and it just makes life, um, it makes it bearable. It makes it bearable. It
1: totally does. In a totally different way of struggle that I might have walked through with my kids and parenting. It is very comforting when you can be in a room with someone who you don't have to explain everything, and they just get it. Yes. And I, I felt so deeply what you said about having friends in my own life personally that love me deeply, like would step in front of a train for me and yet don't understand the unique dynamics of some of the things in my family that have been difficult. And so finding those people is just gold.
2: Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends.
1: your your retreats that you do for moms is this the one where dr bruce perry is coming
0: well he's going to be doing a zoom call he's actually doing one of our calls in october um and yeah i'm taping with him in in a few weeks and he is just the bomb he is amazing well i i only know his work
1: from his most recent book with Oprah, and yeah. I listened to it, and I have literally brought it up like five times this week with people um, because I think it's such a help. How you you mentioned to me that just even learning about neuroscience, and it's so funny. My son, who's a he's a freshman in college, he was telling me last night about something in his psychology class, and he's like, "Oh, this is a bunch of brain stuff." I'm like, "Do you like it?" Because if so, I have a lot of books I can give you because I yeah. too like you have enjoyed this whole new understanding of how our brain affects everything about us. So tell me what it's been like for you in the last couple of years of getting to know his work and other people's work.
0: Yeah, well, the book that you're referring to is, is called What Happened to You. And um, the premise of that book is that often with um, with kids or with children or, or, or just pe- difficult people in our lives, our our response to their being difficult or their Um, being hard to manage whatever is we what comes out of our mouths is what's wrong with you Mm -hmm. and and he reframes it as what happened to you and talks so much about trauma and particularly childhood trauma and um, I mean I'm a survivor of childhood sexual abuse had that trauma um, in in my life and and work and still working through a lot of that myself so I could identify with that but he I'm not a science person, and I think that's what I love about. Them. I was a home ec major for Pete's sake. <laughs> Look at I mean, you! <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a, even a non-existent major. Right. People don't even know what it is. Yeah. Home, uh, yeah. Um, so, not a science person at all. But he makes it accessible, yeah. and for me to understand, I this is during COVID. Is when I really kind of latched onto that. He was he was putting out all these little 20-minute videos that explained why, well, obviously there was the reasons why we were struggling during COVID, but sure. what was happening to our brains mm-hmm. under that kind of stress, under the kind of stress that none of us were used to living right. under. And as he was explaining what happens and how we get triggered and then what that does to our brain and how then we it can lead to conflict or or we're overreacting over something and and we don't even know why. But he would just kind of draw these pictures and I just went, Where were you <laughs> right, right. when I got married forty seven <laughs> years ago? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Well, some of the conflict Rick and I have had, some of the ways that I responded to my kids, Mm -hmm. even just normal things, let alone mental health challenges, and explained myself to myself, oh, my goodness, when this, this, and this happens to me, this is what I do. No wonder. I didn't feel even a mystery to myself. Mm -hmm. I, I was like I could see Oh, my brain isn't online right now. My brain has gone offline because when you said that, it landed here at the you know at the the base of my brain rather than up here where I make logical decisions. And it it had to go all the all the journey up all those different parts of the brain to get to the logical part. And by the time it got to the logical part, I was offline completely. It just has been revolutionary Mm. to me, and it's made me. I told him one time when we were talking, I said, your work makes me want to go back and redo every relationship Mm. in my life. I want to redo my parenting. I want to redo my marriage. I want to redo my time with my son with his mental illness because there was just stuff I didn't get. I didn't understand how it was affecting the way that I was interacting. So for me, it has just been like, Mm
1: -hmm. you know, mind blowing. I listened to that book. Um, I believe it was earlier this year. It's been within the past 12 to 18 months. And, um, For those of you that are listening to this podcast, you'll appreciate this, is when I was listening to it, him and Oprah Winfrey read it together, and it felt so much like a conversation. And so for me, I felt like I was listening to a podcast, but I was actually listening to a book. And Oprah talks about past guests, and and Dr. Perry brings his knowledge in. They're reading the book, obviously. But it was so good, and I, like UK totally found myself going, oh, this is what the reaction from myself was, or this is where the reaction from one of my kids comes from, or my husband, and it just changes everything. I think it's a must read for everybody. Everybody should I read this book.
0: You. It's on my list of must reads yeah. for everybody.
1: Yeah, Yeah. yeah. it's life changing for sure. Uh, you also said you've loved the Enneagram so far as well. You're yes. an Enneagram one. Is that what you said?
0: Yes, I'm just laughing because it's just one of those things that I was scared to death of, you know, mm-hmm. when I first heard of it, I don't know, 15 years ago, however, yeah. however long ago. First of all, I didn't like the diagram. It looked too much like a pentagram. <laughs> yeah. And so, therefore, it was like, I'm not getting anywhere near that stuff, uh-huh. whatever that is. That is not for me. Right. Um, but again, I probably during COVID when I had some extra <laughs> time on yeah. my hands. I was not traveling speaking places, and I was just doing a lot of learning Mm -hmm. and um, really became – just started reading and learning. And again, I had an epiphany about myself that – changed me. Uh, That probably a year and a half later, uh, we have a time at Christmas where we go birthday party for Jesus, family, old family tradition. And part of what we do is we go around and we say, you know, what are you grateful for this year? And what are you going to give Jesus next year? And uh, my two oldest kids said to me, At the birthday party for Jesus, what they were most grateful for that year was that I had discovered the Enneagram. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) I'm like, I can't decide if I'm offended or um, (laughs) by that. (laughs) But they just said it changed the way that I related to them. Mm -hmm. And that as a one, as a reformer, fixer, perfecter, whatever term you want to use, I, If I'm not careful, I can be very judgmental, mm. um, highly critical, yeah. and always looking for perfection. Well, that carried over into my relationships. And my kids were seeing the growth in me of where I could step back and look at myself, see that about myself, own it, mm-hmm. and say, that's not the way I want to be. Yeah. That's not the way I want to make you feel. I don't want to make you feel like you're having to meet. That's not how I want to relate right. to you. Yeah. And so, but what it was what I saw about myself that allowed me to start working on um, some really rough edges. Mm-hmm. And it has this sentence. It's the simplest sentence of all, but I it goes over in my head all the time. It's changed my marriage as well, which is, oh, you're different from me.
2: Mm.
0: Now, that just seems like the most no-brainer sentence ever, but I can honestly tell you I never operated out of that before. Now, sometimes, particularly with Rick, and he and I are polar opposites. Uh-huh. Uh, always have been polar opposites. And places where I would used to get into an argument with him, I step back now and just say, Oh, I'm seeing this mm-hmm. situation like this. Is that the way you're seeing it? And he'll go, No, yeah, not at all. I was saying I I see it like this and then I just I find myself just going, oh, then well, well, never mind, because there's nothing to argue about anymore. Yeah, because we are approaching it so differently that what I was taking offense at or what I was getting judgmental about was not even necessary. I, I'm such a fan of the Enneagram as well. It has been a helpful tool in
1: my marriage as well. And it is just a tool. And I, I love yes. it so much because it's this tool. And just like just like all the things that even Dr. Perry is teaching or anyone is teaching, Dr. Thompson, they give us these tools and they say, hey, here's some more tools. Put them in your t- tool belt and then let the Holy Spirit do his work. And so I love yes. hearing that. Um, yes. Kay, I want to ask you a question that I didn't plan on asking. And I just, I just feel it in here. Um, before we go, we've talked about mental health, and we've talked about the church and the stigmas and stuff. I just want to ask you if you can tell us just a little bit about Matthew and tell us what you loved about him and a little bit of what you remember and how you really cherish him um, for the
0: 27 years that he was here. Thanks. Makes me cry, but it's okay. Because um, there's nothing sweeter to uh, a mother's ear than to talk about her child, particularly a child who's died because people are often afraid to um, bring up your child as though it's going to um, upset you and make you cry. But it's like, but that's, how would I not want to talk about? I love him, of course I want to talk about him. So thank you, thanks for for asking Jamie. Um, Matthew, um, we knew really from very soon, I had a really difficult pregnancy and um, even looking back, don't know if you know what happened in utero was, um, you know, rearranged his brain, I I don't know, but regardless, from very early, um, he was different than my other two. So there was always stuff to think about with him that I hadn't had to think about with the other two. Um, But he grew into the most creative, kind, um, very much the underdog. The the world lost, really, an advocate for vulnerable people Mm. uh, when Matthew died he i i took him on some of the trips that i did during the years that i was a global um, hiv advocate because i thought i thought if he saw people who were quote worse off than he was that that would snap him out of some of his depression
2: mm-hmm.
0: that's one of the things sometimes i think that comes with suicide you feel can feel a lot of regret that yeah. you didn't understand necessarily how hard things were for somebody And I definitely didn't understand that when he was a teenager. I kept thinking that I could either talk him out of it or I could expose him to some other experience and that would snap him out of it instead of understanding Mm. his own pain and struggle. But what it did for Matthew is it actually made it harder for him Mm. because he was already very tenderhearted, very caring. And as he saw the suffering of other people, it just broke his heart Even and he didn't have the capacity to carry that much of a heartbreak. Mm. Um, And I heard from people, I still hear from people uh, almost 10 years later who will tell me some incident, some encounter they had with Matthew where he was looking out for them Mm. or he was looking out for their kid. He was watching for the underdog. He was doing what he could to care for them. And uh, I loved that about him. He had a ridiculous sense of humor, ridiculous sense, totally inappropriate, (laughs) where I was always going, Matthew, (laughs) stop that, or whatever. And nothing made him happier than to get that response. Um, He he was funny and creative and kind. And this healthy Matthew Mm -hmm. was creative and kind and loving and cared for other people. As the illness took over, um, a lot of that became submerged under the layers of illness. and um, But every once in a while, that would still be who popped up. And I knew who he was in his real self. Mm. I knew who he was in his real self, even as his self that was very ill became frightening and um, extremely unstable and just, yeah, scary in some ways he was. But who he was, yeah, um, the essence of him, uh, was precious and beautiful and kind. And he loved his mama. He loved his mama. Oh, thank you for sharing him with us.
1: And to not sound um, churchier or cliche, it is a beautiful thing to to know and believe that, that he has no more illness. Yes. It is beautiful. And um, Kay, what a joy to chat with you today. And I know that there are a lot of people who even just listen to our conversation who feel immensely seen in this conversation. Um, because the older I get, I just don't find a lot of people whose lives are not affected by mental health in some way or another. And... Um, I'm grateful for for the research. I'm grateful for the conversations. I'm grateful for more awareness. And I know that you've had a huge role in that, even though at the beginning, like you said, you were kind of thrust into this advocacy and um, would have rather done something else, I'm sure. Uh, but we're grateful for your voice. I would love to hear from you now in all your free time. I don't even know what you're gonna do with your life anymore. Uh, what are you reading these days?
0: Jamie wants to know. Jamie wants to know. We want to know what you're reading. Well, um, I just finished um, "Celebrities for Jesus" by um, I always say her name wrong, Caitlin Beatty. And if I say her name wrong, I'm sorry. I always read it in print, but I'm not don't hear it pronounced. Just finished that. Um, I'm reading. I love Henry Nowen. I'm re- I'm reading his book Prayer, taking it kind of a little chunk at a time. It's been exactly what I needed yeah. this year. Um, rereading. Uh, Larry Crab's oh, 25-year, 30-year-old book, Inside Out. It changed my life when I first read it. Wow, I'm going to note, note that. I'm telling you, it is it is a powerful book. It will rock your socks. Okay. It will knock your socks off. It's a fabulous book. When I first read it, I remember I was 37, and I came to Rick, and I said, I just realized that I have some issues with control. And he said, <laughs> Yeah, think? <laughs> I've only been trying to tell you that for the fifteen years that we've been married and I'm like, Yeah, but I, I knew I always like had control, but I didn't know it was a thing. Right. <laughs> I will never forget it was what the first time in my life I understood I have control issues, and it's something that needs to be worked on. So, well, maybe I don't want to read it then, Kay. Maybe it's going to step
1: all over my toes.
0: Oh <laughs> uh, yep, yeah, it's so good. Inside Out prayer. Reading this book that is, I can only read a section at a time because it's so intellectual. It's way over my head, but it's called the sound the the sound of life's unspeakable beauty. Okay, um, translated from the German by Martin Schelsky, and. It's he's a viol he's a luthier I guess he's he makes violins oh okay cares all of life to the making of a violin and it is beautiful the way that he puts phrases and words together I was reading it again this morning and I could only read a paragraph (laughs) because I had to stop to absorb not in that kind of heady way that like somebody's trying to impress you Uh with their words it's just he has a way that I I have to think about. Anyway, those are things I'm reading right now. Sounds beautiful.
1: Um, well, Kay, congratulations on the service at Saddleback for 42 and a half years. Um, and I can't wait to see uh, the next half of your life and where God takes you and Rick and the work that you're doing. So thanks for coming on the happy hour today.
0: I love talking to you. Thank you so much, Jamie. Thank you so much for listening to the Happy Hour with Jamie
1: Ivey podcast. We are truly grateful for every single story that we get to share with you, every encouragement we get to give you and every opportunity we get to point all of us to Jesus. If you're loving this show, we would really appreciate it if you would leave us a rating and or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, tell your friends. That is the number one way that people find out about our show. It's because you tell them. Join us right here every Wednesday and Friday for meaningful conversations that will make us think, they'll make us laugh, and they'll always point us back to Jesus. And come find me other places on the internet as well. I love Instagram. I'm over there at Jamie Ivy. And if you've never visited my YouTube page, you're gonna wanna go there. Have you ever listened to a show and wondered, I wonder what they look like? Well, go find us over there. It's jamieivy.com slash YouTube. The Happy Hour with Jamie Ivy is a production of Ivy Media Podcasts. Executive produced by Jamie Ivy. Produced by Lindsay Sweeney, edited by Angie Elkins, show notes by Ashley Minor, art by Jen Jet Barrett, original music by Matt Graham, and I'm your host, Jamie.
2: Have a happy hour with a friend. Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends.